All right, if you brought a Bible with you, feel free to open to Psalm 19, where we're going to be this morning, and pull the sermon outline out as well. Uh, If you've been here before today, uh, you know we're going through the Bible together as a church here in honor of our 75th anniversary. We've been going cover to cover from Genesis to Revelation, and now uh, all of a sudden this week we're jumping a bunch of books into the middle now into Psalms. Why, Why would we do that? Um, If you're reading along through the reading plan through the week, whether it's the light reading plan where you read one chapter a week or or the full reading plan where you read about 20 chapters a week, you've noticed probably that um, most weeks uh, you get a section, or every week you get a section of cover-to-cover reading, and this week it was the book of Numbers. But then I've also asked you to read a couple psalms each week. And the reason for that is because I want to help us as a church learn to pray the psalms. Rather than just reading the Psalms in a row for one chunk of the year, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to pray the Psalms, you'll pray the Psalms on your own with God uh, each day. And so my hope is that as we cover this passage today from Psalm 19, which was one of the Psalms we read this week, that it'll help give you some ideas of how you can be praying as you read the Psalms. How can your Bible reading also encourage you to lift up your voice to God? The Psalms are uh, a unique book in in the Old Testament a unique book in the Bible, because they really are designed to shape the way that you pray. Psalms are poems that are meant to guide the life, the prayer life of God's people. And the reason I'm asking you to read them each week, a few at a time, is because I want to encourage you to pray them back to God. And I wonder, like, how much would my life be different, would your life be different, if we really internalize the language of the Psalms? Justin's led us in some of those Psalms as we've sung them today. And, and what if those became the first words out of our lips as we prayed to God? Think about like Psalm 23, for example. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I, uh, one of my friends died this week, uh, who I play hockey with, who's 46 years old. And I got to spend some time Thursday morning with him at his bedside at, at Kaiser in Irvine. And uh, Psalm 23 is one of the passages I read to him because I want those words to be on his mind before he died. And I would want them to be on my mind and on your mind before you died. This is what I I want for you. I want you to uh, internalize the language of the Psalms, the language of thanksgiving, of lament, of grief, of joy, that we would be able to pray them back to God. So for today's sermon, we're going to look at Psalm 19. Um, It has a lot of the themes that are so prevalent in the Psalms, themes of imagery, of poetry, of artistry, themes of aspiration, of what they hope will come, themes of asking God to know our heart and to vindicate us. But what I really want to focus on in Psalm 19 today is what it says about reading God's word. This is a psalm, essentially, that is about knowing and responding to the Bible and answers the question, why is it worth spending time in the word? Why is reading the Bible a valuable use of your time? Um, I I know that uh, as we've gone through this year of the Bible, I've gotten some feedback from some of you that it's been really encouraging. It's been a helpful uh, momentum builder for something you'd like to be true. You know, you'd like to be the sort of person who reads the Bible, but it's been hard to develop those habits. So you've been encouraged to do that, uh, and that's been helpful to hear. I've also heard from some people, Bob, this is a lot of reading. Um, I think if I preached on the passage that most people are in right now, it'd be something from Exodus 3. Because I've heard from a lot of people, hey, I'm, I'm still in Exodus. Um, and that's okay, right? Developing new habits is hard, and it, it takes time. And if you're behind, it's okay. We're, we're going to start in Deuteronomy next week. Just, just keep, keep reading along um, and do your best. Uh, but I've also heard some more cynical objections, like, 
you know, I've already read the Bible once. Like, I, I've already heard all the stories. Like, I don't really need to read it on my own. Um, if anything in there was that important, you'd, give, you'd tell us about in a sermon. Like, I, I don't really need to read this on my own. Or, or some people maybe more uh, shamefully have said, you know, feeling shame on their own selves would say, Bob, I'd like to be the sort of person who wants to read the Bible, but I just don't get it. I've tried. I just find it boring. Um, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. And so, you know, I just, I just kind of leave it on the shelf. Well, I hope that as we look at Psalm 19 today, you'll see some of the ways that God's word encourages us to spend time with him. The psalm breaks into three parts. The first one is about general revelation. That is, what do we observe about the world about God and how the Bible helps us to interpret our world? The second part, starting in verse 7, is about how the Bible benefits us as we read it. And the last part is about how the Bible shows us ourself. So let's get into uh, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Um, the Bible makes sense of general revelation. When we read the Bible, we're given explicit language to describe what every person knows implicitly. God's word helps us to interpret our world. We see in nature a dim shadow of that which God's word shines brightly for us. When we look at the stars of the night sky, we recognize the glory of God. When we look at the snow-capped mountains that we saw on our way in today, we see how great God is. When our breath is taken away at the expansiveness of the Pacific Ocean, and we whisper, there has to be a God. That's what the psalmist is saying. By the, the heavens declare the glory of God, the grandeur of God. The vastness of what is around us, how small we feel when we hike through the wilderness, those show us how big and great God is. But not just the vastness of God, but also his activity, his, his handiwork in the world. The intricacy we see from how God has put together his creation when I walk through the aquarium with our kids and I see animals that have never seen light of day that maybe people had never seen them before a couple decades ago, and I see how intricately woven together they are, I see God's care for his creation. I wonder what uh, aspect of creation helps provoke your soul to see the glory of God. Romans 1.20 says this is uh, part and parcel of being human. This is what Romans 1.20 says. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And as you think about human cultures around the world, you see that that's so obviously true, that being religious is an endemic part of humanity, whether it's uh, cultures on the far east side of the world or far west side of the world, that part of being human seems to be part of being religious. And we reflect on that nature, and it provokes us to worship. And I hope that uh, you're actively noticing creation around you. And, and that can be a very personal thing, like walking through your garden and noticing all the intricacies of what God has made. That can be an academic thing. I know some of you guys are in vocations where it is your job to study creation as astronomers or geologists or chemists uh, as people who work in the humanities or the social sciences. You study human nature in sociology or psychology or anthropology, that you spend time each day noticing what God has made. And I hope that that provokes you to prayer and to worship. 
Now, of course, there's a limit on how much we can understand about God from creation. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to walk through Yosemite or Yellowstone and say, God is great and God is good. It's another thing to walk through Death Valley. <laughs> um, and if we extrapolated some of the ways that creation is uh, death-creating, we might misunderstand what God's character is like. Because creation speaks, but verses 2 and 3 says it speaks wordlessly. Now listen to what verse 2 says. This is from the NIV. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Um, in the Hebrew, it leaves a little ambiguous as to whether uh, the words and the speech are wordless or speechless or whether the response is speechlessness. But in either case, what the psalmist is saying is that the creation uh, speaks, but it, it doesn't have a clear vocabulary for us to hear. It's going to require God's voice through his special revelation in the scriptures for us truly to understand clearly what he's like. Creation reveals knowledge, but it doesn't say things in a way we understand. Our younger son uh, is now at the age where he's trying to speak, and he's very frustrated by it. And, and he can understand the important words, or he says the important words, you know, mama, dada, Alexa. Um, <laughs> Alexa, Alexa. I think it's because his brother asked Alexa to play uh, Vanilla Ice's song Ninja Rap over and over again. It's hip with the kids. All right, and, uh, but, but he can't say the things that he truly wants, and he gets so frustrated. Uh, he gets so frustrated when he's trying to communicate to us. This is what I want you to understand. And we can see that there's desire. We can see there's longing there. Um, and we know that it's for bread, but we try to pretend like it's for something else. And in the same way, creation frustratingly tries to tell us about God, but there's a limit on how much we can hear from him, from them. Creation is a language of images, one theologian said. It provokes emotions, it provokes feelings, but it doesn't give us clear knowledge of God's character. We can see that God is there, we can deduce some things about him, some limited things, but we're going to really need God to speak for us to understand fully what he's like. The observation of creation and the study of scripture therefore relate to each other, they inform each other. Um, as we understand scripture, it helps us to understand the world around us better, and as a spiral, it continues to function. We continue to study the created order of the world and we go back to scripture and we say, is this true? And then scripture helps us to be informed about what we see in the world and then it goes back and forth like a spiral. Now, um, there's some people who would say, no, the Bible needs to be under the authority of science, not the reverse. That science will tell the Bible what is true, not vice versa. And there are others who will say, no, they're two separate fields of knowledge that can never influence each other. And, some will, and then some fundamentals will say, only knowing the Bible matters. It doesn't matter what you can discern from creation. All that matters is what's in the Bible. I do not want that person to be my surgeon, by the way. Um, no, no the, in my view, the, the best way to understand them is to read them together. To read the Bible as the authority, but influenced and informed by what we notice about the world. As we read in verses 4 and 5, it talks about the earth as the sun being set in a course above the earth. You know, without the fields of astronomy, we might mistakenly think that the psalmist is telling us that the earth is flat and that the sun is uh, on a, a race course back and forth. But of course we know that's not true, right? And we realize, well, this is poetry and we don't have to hold scripture to that same sort of standard. 
So we read the Bible as it helps us to understand the world around us and what God is like as a result of that. And then secondly, we read the Bible because it profits us. The Bible benefits the reader, and there's a value from exposing ourselves to God's word. In the second part of the passage, um, the psalmist will say, now I, I want you to see what it's like to hear God speak for himself. Right? Creation speaks about God, but now I want you to hear God speak for himself. And as a result of that, you might notice that it switches the language to describe God. In the first six verses, it talks about, uh, most translations would say, G-O-D. Uh, that's the Hebrew word Elohim. And the next part of the passage, it'll switch to uh, all caps L-O-R-D. Um, and that's the divine name, Yahweh. And usually, though not always, in the Old Testament, when you see those all caps, L-O-R-D, it's because the author is trying to remind us of the covenantal quality of God, the promises he's made to Israel, how he's revealed himself to his people. And so uh, what, what the psalmist wants us to be reminded of when it says that the Lord has spoken, it's the way that God has revealed himself to his people, and that there's a variety of benefits in that. And as we read these, well, we'll talk about these in a second, but as we read them, there's a couple options that you have as you read a psalm like this on your own. One could be to read these and be like, that's not my experience, and put yourself in the judge's seat or the auditor's seat and say, that's not true, that's not true. The other option you have is to put yourself in an aspirational seat and to say, God, I know that's true, I know it's objectively true, and I would like that to be my experience as well. If you put yourself in the auditor's seat, you're going to distance yourself from God. But if you put yourself in a place of, God, would you show me the reality of this? You put yourself in relationship with God. All right, each section is going to include a claim about what God's word benefits us, or how God's word benefits us, and, and what happens as a result. So let's pick up in verse 7 together. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul first benefit that David mentions is that God's word revives our soul, not just an emotional lift, but, but that it returns us to who we are made to be. That word revives um, could also mean returns or repents. I, I wanted to find a Bible translation that says boomerangs, like God's law boomerangs our soul back to ourself. Um, as opposed to death, the death that comes from continued sin, God's word turns us back to the direction from which we were meant to be that we were meant to return. And as a result of that, we live a wise life. Look at the rest of verse seven. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What David's saying is that anyone who hears God's word and does it ends up with a wise life. No matter how limited their life experience or how low their IQ is, if you do what God's word says, you end up wise. Uh, think about this. Uh, Let's take one commandment, for example. Do not covet. Like, how much wiser would your life be if you consistently obeyed that command? How much better would your marriage be if you did not covet after another person's spouse or another person's marriage? How much better would your parenting be if you didn't compare your kids with someone else's kids? How much better would your finances be if you didn't spend money on things that you long for that you don't have, that you don't need, right? If you were content with what you had. By simply obeying the command, do not covet, even if you don't understand why, it has all these wise implications for your life. And as a result, your heart and your eyes rejoice and are enlightened. Look at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What David's saying is that God's word shows us how to proceed in life. It gives us a light for our eyes. It, sh- it turns on the lights in the room and shows us the direction to go. Now, normally it shows us that in, in far-off markers that we're directed at, not necessarily near markers. God's word probably did not tell you what to wear today, um, though it may have given you values to help you make that decision. Um, if you just, tr- I, I did this as an adolescent, if you just open the Bible in the morning and you just say like, well, all right, Isaiah 8, all right, that's now how I'm going to live today. Uh, you know, the Bible's not a magic eight ball. That's, that's not really how it works. But it does show you values and meaning in order to uh, guide your life. And it's a true and righteous guide, verse 9 says. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. I love that in verse 11. That there is reward and warning in God's word. That the reward, what we might think of as a carrot motivation, and there's warning, what we might think of as a stick motivation, work together in God's word. That as we expose our hearts to it, as we turn our minds to it, as we read the Bible, we both are motivated to avoid pain and motivated to enjoy the benefits of God's word. And as a result of that, we see delight, verse 10 says. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. God's word is valuable in an objective sense. That's the gold part. And it's enjoyable in a subjective sense. That's the honey part. I wonder for you, like, what, what are some of the delights in Scripture? What are some of the passages that you enjoy the most? Maybe it's a parable of the prodigal son. You know, you read that and you think about the fact that you're loved by God regardless of what you've done, and there's always a path back to him. Maybe that tastes like honey when you read it. Maybe it's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. You reflect on that, and that tastes sweet to you. Uh, Maybe for you it's Numbers 15, and the genealogy's there. All right. No? No one? I didn't get one amen for that one. All right. You know, wouldn't it be great if every chapter tasted like honey every day? You know, wouldn't it be great? You know, it's, it, it, that's not like for me either, right? Like, I, I don't even know if number 15 is a genealogy, to be honest. Um, how do we align ourselves with the biblical truth that God's word is good and beneficial? It's a helpful warning and as sweet as honey when that doesn't always match our experience. Maybe this week you, you read a portion of scripture and you said, Bob, I, I would love to have said that this tasted like honey, but it didn't. It didn't taste like anything, to be honest. Well, here's a, a couple uh, words of... of uh, encouragement for you. One is that, you know, our experience is just our experience, right? We, we want to declare the truth of what God's word is back to our soul. So this week, if you're reading a passage, or the next few weeks, if you're reading a passage, and you come to the end of it, and you say, God, I, I know this is true. I know this is good. I know Second Timothy says that this is profitable for me, um, but, but I don't see that. So would you remind my soul, uh, like the psalmist does, that your word is good? Secondly, I'd encourage you to remind yourself of the gospel, right? God does not love you based on how sweet his word tastes to you. God does not accept you based on how good you are at reading the Bible. And God does not delight in you based on whether you open it or not. God loves you based on what Christ has done on the cross for your sins and your faith in him. So I can, I can come to God at the end of a, a session of reading the Bible and with respect and reverence say, God, I, w- I would like 
to have found this sweet. I would like to have found this enjoyable, but to be honest, it felt like dry bones to me. God, would you, would you turn my heart back to you and remind me of how much you love me? And then third, this gets back to the judger versus a servant piece. Admit your limits of knowledge. Admit your limits of life experience and admit the limits of your culture that might blind you to the beauty of a passage. You know, I'm told there are some cultures where the genealogies are really important because they're, val- they're valued in those cultures. Whereas for Californians, who like to pretend that nothing existed before our, we moved here, or maybe we moved here a generation ago, um, we don't find much value in what's come before us. And all of us, even uh, seminary professors, are limited in what we know about God's word. And so rather than saying it's, it is boring, like the 15-year-old who decrees that Shakespeare is boring, we, we understand like sometimes there's limits in our knowledge that are preventing us from delighting in what's in front of us. And then lastly, avoid bias or judgment in the future. C.S. Lewis said, you know, sometimes books are asking questions that we haven't gotten to yet. So if we read them and we find them boring, put them back on the shelf and come back to them later in life. You know, if, if you took a, a four-year-old to a fine dining restaurant and you said, these are the best oysters in the world, how much delight would a four-year-old take in oysters? I mean, maybe poking them and saying, ew, but other than that, that would be it, right? And yet, when you come back to them later in life, you can find delight in them. All right, so why do you read the Bible? First, it helps us make sense of our world. Secondly, it benefits us as we read it. And lastly, it shows us our need for holiness. You know, as we read the scripture, we're confronted not only with what we need to do, but also what we have failed to do and what we cannot do on our own. The last part of the psalm is a direct prayer from David to God where rather than talking about God or about God's word, he begins to talk to God. Essentially, he's saying, God, I come to your word acknowledging that it's good, but also acknowledging that I don't know it all. I don't even know myself fully. God, would you show me what it means to be known by you? This is verse 12. Who can discern their own errors? Who can discern their own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. David's prayer is that God would bring to light through his word anything that's hidden in his soul. This is a prayer that can only be prayed out of a context of grace and of confidence in God's love for him. And it's valuable to have those hidden faults of all of us exposed. So we we come to God's word and we say, God, would you show me in what I read what is true about me that I haven't even noticed? The parts of my character that are disrespectful to you, that are harmful to other people, that maybe I'd never even seen. What are ways that I'm participating in systems of exploitation or harm to my neighbor that I'd never noticed before? What are ways that I am showing disdain for you and things that never occurred to me? Where are those hidden faults of my soul? God, how can your word be like a mirror to show me the truth of who I am because I can't see my own reflection? It's hidden from me. And then when those hidden faults come, we turn to Jesus and we say, thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you that you forgave me even when I didn't realize how sinful I truly was. Christ, thank you that you have forgiven me not just for the sins I've confessed, but for the sins I've missed. And help me to be, as 1 John says, cleansed of all this unrighteousness. And then maybe my favorite verse of the chapter in verse 14 ends with, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart 
right? That is all parts of me, both the public part of me, the words of my mouth, the parts you can hear, the part of me that I put out for public consumption, and the meditations of my heart, the parts of me that you can't see, the parts of me that are hidden. Lord, would you make both of those have integrity together? Would you, would you make me an integrated person who's pleasing in your sight? Because as I read your word, would my outer life and my inner life be put together into one? Uh, this is my favorite passage in this uh, psalm. I actually wrote it. Uh, a few years ago, we had new carpet put on the platform, and during an event, we let everyone in the congregation write prayers uh, on the wood before we covered it up. And I wrote that verse on the platform where the pulpit normally went, or at least used to go, uh, in order to remind myself that this is what I would want for my heart and for your heart, that we would be people that would have meditations of their heart and words of their mouth that would be pleasing to God. Well, how on earth can that happen? How can someone who doesn't even know how many hidden faults he has be pleasing to God? Only through Christ, right? The rock and redeemer that the psalmist refers to. The rock who shows us the truth, the reality. As Jesus said, he, the, the place that we build our lives on, the, the objective truth about our sinfulness, but also our redeemer, the one who brings us back to God. And God's word does both of those things for us. It shows us what is true about ourselves and about the world, but it also doesn't leave us there in despair. It provides redemption through Christ. It points us to, the, to our hope of salvation that comes through him. Well, what do I want for you this week? Um, I really want you to read the Bible. I really do, because I think it'll help you understand the world around you. I think it'll be beneficial for you, and I, and I know that it'll show you your need and the existence of a great Savior. So a couple questions for you to reflect on and pray about this week, and then a, a little bit of a homework assignment. Why do I want to read the Bible, and why do I avoid reading the Bible? So two-part question, and, and this is going to be a complex question that I hope you won't try to answer too quickly. I hope you'll spend some time being open to what God might speak to you in this. God, why do I want to read the Bible? You know, I read Psalm 19, I want that to be true. Like, are there some longings in there that, that come to the surface that I really, yeah, I do, I do want to see that in my life. And then God, what's the truth about why I avoid reading the Bible? You know, I can say it's because I'm busy, I can say it's because I'm out of habit or whatever, but well, what's the truth? Like, why do I avoid this? Am I scared of something? Am I discouraged by something? Um, why do I avoid reading the Bible? And then I'd encourage you to go through the second question, uh, the variety of benefits that are listed there in verses 7 to 11. Uh, there, there are six of them listed. And how have you experienced those? How, how have those happened in your life? How, how can you notice the blessing of Scripture and what it's been in your life? And then we have a, 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 a I don't know, a prop for you to bring with you in that time. Um, we're going to have ushers at the door on your way out that are going to have honey sticks, like you would get at Starbucks or something for your tea. And I'm going to encourage you to take one on your way out. And then when you're doing this prayer project or when you're doing some Bible reading this week, encourage you to uh, eat that honey stick, health permitting. Um, if your doctor would yell at me, don't, don't do it. But as long as, as health permitting, I'd encourage you to take some time to uh, sort of mindfully eat the honey and say, God, I want to experience your word this way. And when I don't, I want to be open to what it means to connect with you, even when it doesn't taste this sweet. All right. Well, let's spend some time closing in prayer. God, thank you for your word. Um, I want to be someone who delights in it and who humbly listens to it and who obeys it.
Uh, but I confess that I and, and, and all of us too often avoid your word. We avoid hearing from you. Please give us a delight in reading scripture, uh, and even more than that, a delight in knowing you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.